0: This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's Community Access Media Organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz.
1: Free FM 89.0. Now we present Big Things Ahead, a Free FM series in which Paul Barlow tackles the big things facing Kirikiriri Hamilton the Three Waters reforms, representation, growth, infrastructure. Ewe and youth participation in decision making and climate change for more episodes of big things ahead visit freefm.org.nz spotify or apple podcasts and search for big things ahead Welcome to Big Things Ahead, a new series here on FreeFM with me, Paul Barlow, where I look at some of the big changes that are coming to Kirikirua Hamilton that is going to shape the way the city evolves, changes and grows in the future. In today's episode, we're looking at transport, because it's one of those issues that everybody has a say on, that's going to affect everybody in the city, that has some far-reaching ramifications that people don't often think about. Let's start with the basics. Transport within the city is the single largest emitter of carbon into the air and the atmosphere, meaning that making sure that future planning around transport has to be environmentally friendly and take on board changes to how people move about. At the same time, Kirikirua is a growing city. It has the fastest growth rate of almost any city in the country. And there are new government rules being proposed that include intensification of urban areas so you've got a lot more people and a lot more potential for growth but that means a lot more potential for people out there on the roads this is where it gets really complicated because sometimes you're going to need to have vehicles for private use you're going to have transport vehicles and you've got to create options that allow people to have alternative transport out there as well Where those work the best and how it's going to feed into a growing city is a constantly changing target for anybody who works within the transport sector. And that includes things like your local council, as well as your regional council, and everybody in between, because there's a lot of freedom in having your own car that you don't get when you're dealing with public transport. But the city itself has to be designed around the fact that people transport themselves in very different ways, ranging from walking, walking riding, uh, scootering, going on the bus, taking the ferry, there's a lot of options there and it becomes a really big complicated mess to try and work out what's best for now, what's best for the future and what's going to be best for generations down the line when it comes to issues like climate change. So let's start with a quick look to the past specifically last year's experiments from Waka Kotahi around living streets. Now the living streets experiment was something that was rolled out around the country and essentially what happened was councils had to put forward a couple of proposals for areas that were already planned to have upgrades or changes to it and they were going to experiment a bit with different layouts, different colour patterns and different ways to try and enrich the experience of working on those streets within kirikiriroa there were two streets that were selected the first was ross trevor street and the second was ward street one of these is very much a feeder street for the rest of the city and the other is very much a central city location that the council has been trying to activate at the same time that they're trying to keep people happy with how they go about using it and to be fair the results particularly for the
0: hamilton experiment were not that popular? <laughs> well, um, we all got burned. There's no doubt about that. Um, I actually voted uh, against Ward Street and Ross Trevor Street because I felt they were the wrong streets. My my pitch to Waka Tahi for, um, for um, Innovating Streets was uh, I wanted to do something more with Clemens Bridge um, and have some more um, educational party days, if you like, down in Hamilton East, but they... They went with Ward Street, and my worry was, of course, it was just too big, too far. So, look, and that's the thing, a great idea, fantastic idea, and I'll I'll support, you know, obviously innovation, but it did us so much damage with our credibility um, with uh, the community that if we don't take a learning from that, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble because I tell you what, I I live uh, not far from Crosby Road. And we're trying to, you know, um, talk with the community about the potential of putting a cycle lane down Crosby Road so we can join up two major uh, north-south cycle routes. But unfortunately, it was on the backdrop of Ward Street. And of course, man, we don't want another one of those. And out came the pitchforks. And then, of course, there was um, uh, the cycle bridge, which came out, the Auckland Harbour cycle bridge came out at the same time. So those things make it really hard to do the more well-thought-out, low-hanging fruit stuff. So, you know, while we were working on the really cool things like the Manga Iti Path and Across Parks and the Parks Connections Plan and more of that stuff that people don't have to get in the way of stuff, Ward Street happened, boom. And I think we got seduced by the 90% funding from Waukakate, Uh and said, well, look, it's free money, but actually it turned out not to be um, because... It actually, we ended up paying close to between thirty and forty percent of the cost by the time we covered it all up um, and took it back. Um, and the the political equity we spent on that was not. I just don't think it was worth it. So, yeah, it's, it's factionalised two sides of town too. It's factional. It's it's made the business community come up against the community community, and oh, yeah, ugly, 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 and and it really burnt out some staff too. It was very hard on them. So, yeah, it was a hard exercise. I think, um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you don't get fruit unless you go out in the limb, do
1: you? And that sentiment actually echoed pretty much all around the council table. While it was an interesting experiment, and while it had potential, the learnings from it weren't exactly the best learnings so far that could be incorporated into how to do things within Hamilton. In fact, if anything, it was a lesson in what not to do. talking to Councillor Sarah Thompson about this, who's got a role on the infrastructure committee. So this kind of thing sort of falls under her purview, and it was very much a similar sort of feedback.
2: I think the idea is really important of trialing things um, and getting data from them. moving, say, you want to put a bike lane in, um, you might uh, not know exactly the right place to put things, or um, you might want to just temporarily close off a street, see how it goes. If neighbours then feel like, yep, that actually wasn't too bad, then you can continue with the much more expensive permanent works. Um, I think... In Hamilton, we maybe bit off more than we could chew. With we didn't uh, foresee how uh, intense and involved the process was going to be. So stakeholder engagement um, is incredibly important, and I don't think we, you know, had enough capacity at the time to. Uh, to be out on the ground engaging with those people affected by the changes as much as we should have. So that's something we learnt from it. Um, And also we chose quite a difficult street, (laughs) I think, you know, even though Cambridge got a bit of a flat for what they did there and they they ended up reverting one of their one-way roads back to two-way, I think otherwise they actually – probably chose took a better approach with focusing on schools, so you're not taking away so much parking. And uh, and there was some really clear measurable results from their project. Um, they had 58% more people biking along the routes after they made the streets slower and put in um, some one-way streets and, and other safety measures, and 26% more people walking. So that's an awesome result from just a very short trial. Um, in Hamilton, we didn't have such clear results, even though we put in the bike lanes, um, we made it safer to, to walk uh, on the street. Uh, the biking levels seem to stay pretty consistent. And uh, partly that could be uh, because we did a very short street, so, you know, you still need to connect to more places, and there's, it's a no-man's land once you get to Anglesey Street. Um Whereas, again, in Waipa, they actually did a whole route, but it was kind of – it was very low-cost treatments over a longer route, and I think that was maybe more useful in terms of getting numbers up. So uh, overall, I I definitely think we should do more stuff like this, but maybe less paint on the road because – it made people feel like we were wasting money um, and it was a bit superfluous. Our culture is maybe not there yet in terms of <laughs> being experimental with our streetscapes.
1: But despite having a very mixed result, there are still some potential positive outcomes from this experimenting on the streets. But there's a problem with those outcomes and that they haven't been delivered yet. When I spoke to Hamilton Mayor Paula Southgate about this, this is how she put it
3: you're right, it's had a mixed result around the around the country. And that's a shame because it's left a very sour taste in people's mouths. And yet the intention of these trials was absolutely the right intention to trial and explore ways of multimodal travel and getting people out of the cars. Um, I am yet to hear from Waka Kotahi what they consider the biggest successes and barriers were from a whole country perspective, what have we learned from this? Because surely the whole reason to do an experiment is to go, that worked well, we'll replicate it, or, that did not
1: work and we won't. So while the Wakat Kotahi living streets experiment may have had some mixed results, one of the things that became really apparent from that is just how reliant Hamiltonians are on being able to park outside the shop that they want to go into, which is where a large number of the complaints from local businesses came from. Which brings us really nicely onto the topic of public transport. Now public transport is a complicated issue in any area. Within Hamilton specifically, the City Council pays for the infrastructure while the Regional Council is in charge of organising the physical transport itself. And that's all funded through central government. That means that there are some services which aren't available within Hamilton, like buses for example for school kids, that you might find in a rural area but the aim is to constantly improve what's going on within the public transport sphere to get more people out there so that they don't necessarily need to have their own private transport all the time. I spoke to Waikato Regional Councillor Jennifer Nickel about this, and she's got the transport portfolio, so she's really passionate about making sure that this works for everybody.
4: But yeah, me personally, I would love to see... uh incredible increase in public transport uh, to get us to a place where we do not need to own a car to get to most places. And the thing that makes this possible is, um, so for example, we've got a trial happening at the moment uh, with on-demand bus services. So that would be kind of not quite like a taxi, not quite like an Uber, but but kind of a corner-to-corner um, service that you can book um, in areas that you wouldn't have a bus, you know, all the time. But but when somebody says they need it, they can get you from A to B. And then the the main routes uh, that are very popular or um, have a lot of density of people living on them would would just have that that dream of say fifteen or ten minutes um, coming and going every day.
1: That dream of buses arriving at really regular smaller intervals is actually an integral part to how you go about building public transport and user transport options like walking and cycling. Because if you make it easy for people, you see an increase in patronage. As Sarah Thompson here points out, looking at the Orbiter, which is one of the longest running bus services within the city, and the history of how that's actually evolved over time.
2: It's currently every 15 minutes, but there was a time when they dropped it down to say every 20 minutes because of budget reasons. We had patronage just drop off a cliff. (laughs) So, and then they... They increased the frequency again and patronage went up again. Um, it's also pretty telling that the orbiter and the comet have had the best recovery um, you know, through these COVID lockdowns, whereas some of the other more windy, less frequent routes, um, uh, they haven't recovered so well.
1: And while there are initiatives in place at the moment that are being trialled, like those door-to-door, corner-to-corner on-demand bus services there's also other things that the city can look at or that the regional council or central government can look at to try and find better ways to use buses and public transport to minimize the amount of traffic on the roads one of those examples are dedicated school buses a mainstay for rural schools all over the country urban areas tend not to have them but by removing them from within the city you increase traffic for people who have to travel to get their kids to school
2: um, the other thing is dedicated school buses. So this is something I'm quite hot on at the moment. Hamilton's funny because, unlike a lot of other um, cities, we actually don't have dedicated school routes, and uh, that that means that there are schools like intermediates where students just don't take the bus because. Um, they would otherwise have to take a incredibly long journey and transfer at the transport centre, um, which causes safety issues and and um, parents worry about their safety. But so they can cause some trouble too, um, and 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 so um, you know you, you don't have the uptakes that you could for students. Uh, So something I'm very keen to do is to start trialling some dedicated bus routes for schools where it's most suitable, where they've got the larger zones like the intermediates and the children are a bit older so they can take the bus independently um, and prove that there is a case for investing in school bus transport. Uh, Unfortunately, the Ministry of Education uh, only provides school buses as an absolute last resort so they only focus on rural areas and I think that's a huge lost opportunity um, and, the, and, and an approach that has to change uh, in this you know, current climate crisis.
1: In fact ease of usage is a core component of any planning for public transport or other transport options out there as well and it became really apparent during the lockdowns recently just how much that comes into play, because not only were you seeing less cars on the road, you're seeing a massive increase of the amount of people using the facilities around other forms of transport, so walking, riding, scooting, for example. And those areas like the Waikato Riverwalk, for example, are huge examples of how much safer people feel when there's less cars on the road, making it an easier option for them to look at alternative forms of transport.
4: Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say we'll get to the point where you don't call it alternative transport. Yeah, where it'll just be transport. Totally. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's good that it's good uh, urban planning, meeting um, the availability of making uh, walking, cycling, um, scootering, uh, using the bus. Not just a possible option, but a preferred option. So you need to make the walkways, cycleways actually preferable to use to sitting in a car, or um, or the bus system just easier to use rather than sitting in a car. So, so there'll be cars, but it'll just be hopefully more convenient to do the other things. You make walking and cycling um, safer when you have less cars on the road. So it all kind of comes together in the end. Of course, the idea of
1: convenience for alternative forms of transport, you uh, your walking, your riding, and your scootering, as an example, uh, really comes down to what's convenient for you. And for everybody, that's going to be different. There's some school of thought that feels that because Hamilton is a flat city in a relatively compact area, being able to use what's already built in terms of roading to make more bike lanes and make it easier for people to cycle is one way of getting people out there. But there's also an alternative thought that you've got these resources in place for people to use alternative transport options differently by creating biking networks going through public spaces and gully areas and quicker ways to get where you need to using that different form of transport. As Councillor Mark Bunting has been saying for years he wants to build a network that's not
0: just about getting you from A to B it's about enjoying the environment that you're in as well. We, uh, we've we got to have alternatives before we try and disincentivize people for travelling on the roads. It's as simple as that. But we're a new town, we're a fast-growing town, and we were built for the car. Okay, So other than our new suburbs, we have to retrofit. But if we're going to retrofit, I think our engineers at the moment are saying, okay, well, let's just put cycle lanes down the sides of roads. I'm saying if you're going to build an alternative network, build it across parks through gullies, and you know, look, I've banged on about this many, many, many times before, um, where you have your Manga Eti Park and you could go right diagonally across Claudlands, etc., et cetera, and away you go, um, and, and, and down gullies and the likes. But you cannot get people out of cars until there's something to go to. Dedicated bike and walk
1: paths are a fantastic way to ensure that people get out there and use them, particularly if they feel safe and having to avoid traffic and changes to the way that traffic works around the city have also seen improvements, with more people using the new right-turn lane onto Claudelands Drive than ever before, and new transport options opening all the time, like the extension of the ring roads. But there are two forms of transport that Hamilton really hasn't explored all that much that has the potential as well to reshape exactly how the city moves and how people who visit the city get around. And that's a ferry service on the river and a train service going out to the suburbs. Both of those come with their own set of challenges, but also have their own potential benefits. If we have a look at the river, one of the big complaints about the way that Kirikiriroa has developed over the last century and a half has been that buildings tend to face away from the river within the CBD, and in suburbs they tend to face towards it because you get more expensive housing that way. It's a fantastic waterway though, that goes right through the middle of the central city and passes a dozen suburbs. And the infrastructure there to build and get things ready for a ferry service on a large scale is actually pretty close. The council's been upgrading ferry terminals recently and that's most obvious if you go down to Hamilton Gardens. You can see the new look ferry terminal down there for the Waikato River Explorer and that actually offers a ferry service on a limited basis at the moment. A regular ferry service could cut congestion quite dramatically and would follow suit of places like Venice, Brisbane and other countries around the world that have a central waterway that goes through their CBD. It creates a nice way to get people into town that's stress-free, that doesn't involve emissions on the same sort of levels that you're going to get through public transport, because emissions aren't just necessarily the carbon that comes off the, the machine. It's also things like heavy metals that get washed into drainage. That causes some problems on the roads that you're not necessarily going to see through a ferry service. So there's always been a lot of potential for that. And While at the moment there's only one company that's set it up and is running on limited capacity at the moment due to everything happening with COVID, the potential is there right now to be able to create something truly unique for Kirikirira that makes use of what's going on. But at the same time, to get the permits in there organized, to be able to physically set something like that up, it involves a lot of capital to put in in the first place. And you have to involve at least three organizations. You'd have to have the city council agree to let you use their facilities. You'd have to have the regional council happy that your impact on the environment isn't going to be huge. And because it's Taonga to Waikato Tainui, you have to ensure that they're happy with that service happening as well. And that can be a complicated measure getting any sort of organization working together. But the potential is there and the potential is absolutely massive to create a unique transport system within the region that incorporates the most stunning natural resource that the city actually has at the moment and one that everybody is in agreement needs to be utilized better. Another form of transport that's never really been explored within Hamilton is a train. Now, you'll be aware that there's already a train service that now runs between Hamilton and Auckland called Tahuia. And Tahuia was designed really specifically to be an alternative for people travelling up to the big city for work more than anything else. Although on weekends, it tends to have a lot more traffic of people going up, doing trips up to the city to do shopping and the CBD there. Within Hamilton itself, you already have the largest train junction in the country. And that sitting right there in Frankton makes it a really perfect spot for people who are wanting to look at day trips or looking at creating a hub that you can move around the city in. With stops in Tarapa, Frankton, uh, all the way down towards Dinsdale, all the way over to Hillcrest, you can create a miniature rail network that works within the city through some really populated areas to get people to other spots, and focusing those on shopping areas, which tends to be the reason people travel the most other than work, it gives you a really good opportunity to build a network that allows people to move around a lot freer without clogging up the streets. In fact, underneath the warehouse in the CBD, which used to be the transport center many years ago, there's an underground railway station that was built in the 1980s that sat unused this whole time, that was designed really specifically for the event one day of local train transport to get people around the place. Of course this network could always be expanded to other areas as well but being such a small compact city it's not really economically viable to go and adding train services to an area that's so compact and so flat when you would probably get the same results from people using buses or transport options like riding scooting and walking. And It doesn't take you that long to walk from somewhere like Fairfield to the CBD it, it usually takes me 15 to 20 minutes so it's one of those yeah it's a nice day out kind of things and a train isn't really going to speed that process up but if you're looking at mass amounts of people moving around the place people moving from say hillcrest for work going into the cbd for work you've already got yourself a built-in network to be able to expand upon that could actually do some really good within the city At the same time though, the city is growing and changing. There's a whole bunch of different factors that are always going to be in play. And things like the government announcement on the intensification of putting in properties and locations up to three stories on quite a small footprint has the ability to really change how this sort of thing works. Infrastructure for transport is only going to work if it's set up properly to begin with. And for some councillors, there's a really clear guideline, as it were, as to what to do to make sure that alternative forms of transport, not just driving, are an option that's
2: much more viable for people. Compact city is good. The more we spread out, the harder it is to bike and walk um, where you want to go. And of course, there's always the fact
1: that people often think about this in a vacuum. People consider how they're going to drive, what bus they're going to take, if they need to catch a ferry. When it comes to transport options, though, there's a really important thing to remember that a lot of us forget, which Mayor Paula Southgate sums up really well here.
3: Because actually, many journeys are not just one mode. If you catch a bus, you walk to the bus stop, right? You walk there, and you, meet, you might even scoot there with a little folding up scooter, you might get on the bus, and then you might walk to work at the other end for a short. So those are the sort of multimodal solutions.
1: As you can see, transport is a really complicated issue. It's very much like the human circulatory system in that everything is kind of connected and one little change is going to offset a whole bunch of changes in other places. Some people are really focused on one over the other, while others are trying to give you a more holistic approach. Experiments are being done and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you learn stuff from it straight away and sometimes it takes a little bit longer for that information to come out to us. Either way, when it comes to planning for the city of the future, that's a really tough thing to do. Because right now, there's transport technology options out there that we might not even have considered. Who knows, personal drones, instant teleporters, Star Trek stuff buried deep in the future. And the city now kind of has to plan for those alternatives without knowing what those alternatives are. And that's a big ask. There's walkways that are being proposed and Bridges and pathways and train tracks and everything like that that you can think of that our elected officials have to take on board. And it's no easy task. And as you've seen from the variants of opinions that we've had in today's show, I don't think there's actually a wrong way to look at it beyond let's burn more fuel so we can get to where we want to faster. Because one of the things that's really common across everyone that I've spoken to on this topic is that transport emissions are a major factor in how we go about planning for the future. As I've said before, and in the episode on climate change, 65% of the emissions from the city come from carbon created through transport. So not only is it really important for our leaders who are planning these things, who have to fund these things and, and budget and organize and build these things to know where people are going to be and what the intensification of population is going to be, there's a really important element of being able to know what the impact of that is going to be. And that's something that we quite often forget when we want to go down to the base to go shopping. And that's really what it boils down to. In this, it's very much a case of the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few when it comes to planning. Right, that's us done on transport. Don't forget, you can download this episode and much more at freefm.org.nz, and I will catch you guys next week when we're going to have a look at the local government reforms. Until then, have a great week. For more episodes of Big Things Ahead, visit freefm.org.nz, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Big things ahead is a free FM podcast to Yanarrel Otehapori.
0: Thanks for listening to this free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.